Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. So tonight we got them. Goldie, the Sulk, and JC. And it starts right now. Oh, welcome back to another episode of A Typical Disgusting Display, a podcast for writers by writers who hate writing. Uh, we're excited for today's show. We are going to be talking with Dateline correspondent. Josh Mankiewicz coming up. <laughs> We're excited for that. We're going to talk Woo-hoo. to him about Dateline. We're going to talk to him about his incredible family. Wait till you hear all the people in his family. And uh, Goldie, I see you just put on a Steve Zissou uh, cap. It is 68 degrees in California. This is the coldest I've ever been. <laughs> First joke of the day. First joke of the day. Drop in hand. I am dying. Send a rescue party. <laughs> Oh, 68 and sunny. What a nightmare. <laughs> yeah, is that why you put the cap on? Yeah, I'm freezing. Dude, you, I, I don't have hair like everyone else. There's no line of defense. It's just going right to my brain. <laughs> this isn't the only uh, pitfall you've had this week. No, I'm um, like a soft shell crab of a human being. <laughs> yeah, oh, I love those. <laughs> I'm going to eat you up. Those are great. But you've had a rough week. Something forced you out to the drugstores, right? And you... Well, I just, okay. So I, I want to talk to people who are thinking about having kids. Yeah. And just give them a little peek behind the curtain at my life. And then you can sort of compare if this is something you, you feel like you might be wanting to do. So uh, I am ready to go to bed. It's about uh, 10, 20, a few nights ago. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I feel like, okay, I'm going to turn in, lie down. I get the blankets over me. And then my door is bashed open like in a courtroom drama, the door swings open and someone screams at me, my seven-year-old, my butt itches, my butt itches. An angry. So like, I'm not unfamiliar with that, but I always, you know, I don't think I ever really bothered my parents with it. I would just sort of scratch it till it was bloody not tell anyone and then go on with my life <laughs> wash your hands and go on with your day yeah, exactly. yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> just survey the medical ruin and tell nobody. And so, but of course, that's not an option anymore. So, you know, my, one, my wife and I, uh, you know, well, we got to look at it. Sure. <laughs> Looks like a butthole. <laughs> Still, and then I uh, put in, uh, you know, a little cortisone ointment on, yes. the, on the outer part. That, that doesn't help. The butts. So now it's 1040. Still screaming about the, the butt. So I say, okay, I'm going to run to the CVS and get preparation H. There you so, go. You're so nice. Just so you know, I've never used preparation H in my life because right, same. I am fastidious about beehole care. <laughs> and it's something I take a great amount of pride in because it, to me, to, to have a hemorrhoid, it's, it's like if you were to own an antique car and you were to bring it to a mechanic and it was all rusty and you know they spend their life fixing it and they would they would go oh you know you you didn't really do any maintenance on this did you <laughs> you know right. but if i ever went into a proctologist they would say well you've you know you've taken very good care of this <laughs> i would say yeah, it is perfectly preserved from 1972 it's vintage oh, wow. and uh, <laughs> you know it still it still works really well i haven't like you know, scraped it with bamboo like some people I know oh, who've who just God. raked their beehole with. <laughs> so anyway, I, I, I get to CVS and I'm I'm I walk down every aisle. There's no preparation H, and I'm I'm not gonna ask someone because I'm right. fifty involved and. I don't have a hemorrhoid, so I don't. Right. I don't want some anonymous person I'll never see again to think I might have a hemorrhoid because that's not who I am. Right. I'm not. I'm not going to go. Oh, you know, it's for my seven year old. They don't care. Yeah. yeah. So like, then yeah, I, right. I, they don't. I don't. I don't see it. So then I go to a Seven Eleven. Same thing. And so the question is: Is preparation H? First of all, did it go out of business in 1981? And I'm the last person to know because I've only seen a commercial and I've never had a hemorrhoid. That's question one. Or question two, is this one of those like COVID shortage things where like, you know, whatever makes hemorrhoids swell down, uh, they ran out of the key ingredient and it's just getting out there. It could be they could be locked up behind the counters. Oh, which is that's also weird theory. to think about. That's an interesting theory. People were stealing it. <laughs> yeah, oh, it could they be. Were, well, who were... wants to ask or be seen <laughs> buying it? Uh, well, they steal <laughs> it. That's why. That's right. the answer. Yeah, so no, that's what I'm saying. Glass. That makes sense. It should only right. be stolen, really. <laughs> behind be glass free. for your ass. That's the <laughs> oh, section you, you need to look for. And by <laughs> the way, preparation age. Oh. Does exist. I have never had a hemorrhoid either. Miraculously. Yeah. I'm like the guy who you talk about the car. I would think you're more hemorrhoid than man. I know. My ass is like the car that sits on the front lawn, and then you get in there, and somehow it starts right up. I don't know how. Good analogy. Well, the sort of uh, end of the story is, I, and, and I also, because I kind of left in a huff, like, I was like, I'll go get Preparation H. But then I didn't find it. And then I was, like, so ashamed to go. I was like, I, I really want to find it. Like, I don't want to yeah. come home and then have failed, which I did. So then I got home and my wife said, you know, she's been asleep for, like, 45 minutes. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, wake her up. I want to tell her about this. <laughs> yeah. I want... But there's one other thing I want to talk about this yeah. week. I have a theory about the Golden Bachelor and what's about Ooh. to happen. And this will actually, our podcast will air before the finale. So are okay. you still watching it? You know, I'm a couple episodes behind. behind, but okay. I but I I have been watching. This it. won't spoil anything yeah. okay. for you. 
here's my theory on what's going to happen. This is going to be the twist this okay. year. Is you know they're they're now down to two, and then there's Ooh, this no. this I think get the thing with the suites. I've never watched The Bachelor before, but they basically get them rooms the and fantasy they can suites. The have fantasy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, so oh, they're wow. the suites, and then ideally this guy's gonna pick one. So, but here's what I think is gonna happen. He's gonna pick one, and it's very appropriate with our guest today. The Bachelor is the Golden Bachelor is going to pick one of these women, and then the producers are gonna reveal. His wife is not actually dead. <laughs> They're going to bring her out, and then he will have to choose oh. between his old wife and old the new wife. love. <laughs> now, what brought about this theory? I like it. Thinking. <laughs> Preparation age. What would be the greatest twist ever? It would be that, wouldn't it? Ooh. But I thought you were going to say, based on our guest today, uh, Dateline, that that it'll be revealed that he had actually murdered his first yeah. wife. And that then good... the woman will have to decide, do you still want to be with him? My guess, the answer would be yes. Yeah, I think <laughs> mine is a little more clever. But yeah, I, I no, hear yours. It's not. It's not. Yeah. I would say a little less clever. Yeah. I mean, all it takes to get a woman above 75 to fall in love with you is literally just sitting there and, and acting like Forrest Gump. <laughs> and Noah, you can drive at night. It's a yep. dumb deal. Yes. That's yeah. it. That's all it is. All right. Well, now we will be watching The Golden Bachelor with a renewed enthusiasm. Yes. Right. Yes. And as you mentioned, this our show, you're listening to this on Thanksgiving week. Yes. So we'd like to happy wish all of you a very happy Thanksgiving. And are you in a nightmare with your family? Can you step away for an hour and a half to listen to us? Maybe. Maybe we're providing <laughs> you that service. I think the worst Thanksgivings are when you go home with someone you're not married yet, and then you're like hiding in a closet to fart. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've come to have great Thanksgivings now with Tall's family. Um because they're, you know, they're all lovely people, but also Tall's uh, father is is quite old. Uh, he's in his mid-90s. And so he is, like me, quite sedentary. And yeah. so often, oh, you know, when the family's like, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to go shop here, we're going to go watch this movie. I'm like, I'm, you know what? I'd like to hang out with Jack <laughs> because like we just sit there. He sits in his comfy, easy chair. I sit on the couch and we watch football or old movies. And I'm like, this is, this is fine. It's perfect. This is a good, a good version of Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. 
All right. Well, something I'm looking forward to less than Thanksgiving is Johnny Jokes. From Hollywood, where you'll be saying no thank you to these here. Yes, do not pass the Johnny jokes. Uh, all right. Well, a situation in the Middle East. We are going to talk about it. Israel has announced that they will begin daily four-hour pauses in their military operations in Gaza. The pauses will enable humanitarian aid to be delivered and for Palestinians to see the first half of Killers of the Flower Moon. <laughs> Long movie. They can see it during the pause. Who knows? Yeah. I wrote my wife a letter during that movie. <laughs> uh, a recent scientific study has revealed that instantly responding with sarcasm is a sign of a healthy brain. Hmm. Uh, when reached for comment up in heaven, Matthew Perry said, could they be more wrong? <laughs> Does not agree with that scientific <laughs> no, study. No, certainly not. Uh, and here's another uplifting story. The son of legendary Hollywood agent Sam Haskell has been arrested in connection with a torso that was discovered in an Encino dumpster. Uh, authorities are investigating what the agent's son may have done with the back end. <laughs> there, there will be some overlap. <laughs> I can't wait. And finally for me, a full dinner menu recovered from the Titanic Ooh. was sold at auction last week for almost $100,000. Yeah. Uh, ironically, the starter was an iceberg wedge. <laughs> that's very good. <laughs> Take it away, Johnny, too. Uh, that's very good. I, this is just going to be a walk of shame for me because I No, I hate you always meat. say that. You say well, that every th week. This week, I mean it. <laughs> well, the world's population hit 8 billion last week. Mm. Wow. Well, 8 billion sounds like a lot. Remember, 5 billion are Nick Cannon's kids. <laughs> <laughs> You're already a liar. That's already funny. Okay. Well, <clears throat> the city of Chicago is now so unpleasant that immigrants are fleeing back to their native Venezuela. Ooh. Yeah, their homelands may be filled with Death squads, poverty, and violence, but at least they no longer have to watch the bulls. Uh, <laughs> These are good. Not good. Uh, <clears throat> scientists, scientists have found a kill switch that can destroy even the most toxic cancer. Yeah, uh, they knew they'd stumbled on something when it made Ted Cruz disappear. Uh, <laughs> got him. Okay. And finally... The son of a powerful Hollywood agent allegedly murdered his wife and in-laws and chopped up their bodies in his home. And, uh, you know, I thought this was nice. The suspect's father says he's willing to accept 10% of the blame. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we were right in that same area. <laughs> I was trying to work with something with the torso with his better half, but I couldn't really. I thought it. when I heard torso in an Encino dumpster that I, would th I thought maybe it was dating Pete Davidson or something. <laughs> <laughs> like, I didn't know where you, where you were going funny. with that. I thought the joke was going to be on the torso in the Encino dumpster. <laughs> <sighs> All right. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Oh, fans, friends, friends, we are incredibly excited today. We are very lucky to have a great guest. Our guest today uh, has been a... Dateline correspondent since 1995. I mean, we hard we, to believe. We yeah. think we've been at our job for a long time. Um, of course, you know him. You love him from that show. And later this month, he's going to be releasing an original podcast called Deadly Sin that we will talk mm. a little bit about. And one of the things we're going to talk about is that it's probably not going to be called Deadly Sin. But oh. go ahead. <laughs> you texted me that last night. I did. I know. Okay. I have the okay. latest information, which oh, I'm wow. going to break on this podcast. Breaking okay. Or we, can, we can also pitch on titles. We're good at that. <laughs> okay. um, good. Folks, please welcome our friend, Mr. Josh Mankiewicz. Josh, thank you so much for talking yeah. to us this Welcome. morning. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We are excited uh, to have you here. And and let's let's just jump right into it. We'll get to repitching uh, the name for Deadly Sin a little <laughs> later. But as I mentioned, it's incredible how long you've been over at Dateline. And America has really fallen in love with true crime. When did you notice that that happened? Like, was there a demarcation case or did it just kind of gradually over time, this is what people love? When I was covering the Casey Anthony trial, yeah. sorry, when we were, when, when Dateline was covering the Casey Anthony trial, not me, it was Dennis Murphy, I saw this giant surge of public interest in it uh and he had a shot of people lined up outside the courthouse who were just fascinated by it then i when i personally covered the jody arias trial in phoenix yeah um there was this huge long line at the courthouse i went and interviewed randomly a couple of women who were in line and they told me that they worked together at what i think was some insurance company in michigan and they had both taken a week of vacation oh to come God. to Phoenix and go to the trial. Wow. I thought, I thought, wow. Vacation. <laughs> that is something. But connecting the dots there of both those cases. So uh, America loves hot, crazy women. <laughs> like, sure. is that, is that yeah. kind of, uh, yeah, that seems yeah. like a, a little connection yeah. there. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And your point. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. This is um, this is that's the dog bites man headline yeah. of the day. I mean, I mean, I I think there's a lot of things going on here. First of all, True Detective, which is sort of the first true crime piece of journalism, they're dedicated specifically to true crime. That was published in um, 1924. Oh wow! So wow. that'd be that'd be a hundred years of interest in true crime. Okay. Uh, wow. They just suspended the print edition like a couple of years ago, but they're still available somewhere. And of course, what they did. You know, those stories they told, that's what we're telling now and everybody else. So 
I don't think this is new. I think there's always been some some significant interest in true crime. I think that in a time in our lives in which nothing seems to work properly, um, I think people enjoy seeing the system work the way at least they think it's supposed to. And for one hour a week or a couple hours a week, that scoundrel, usually a guy, gets what's coming to him. (laughs) The audience, overwhelmingly women, although not entirely, but significantly women. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, domestic violence shows up in the background of so many of the Dateline stories we tell. Uh, And I say that because that, I think, helps explain the audience a little bit. I mean, women are more frequently on the sort of business end of domestic violence, and they, they, uh, they're they, much more likely to talk to other women about their problems with men. Or the, I mean, you know, you don't hear men say to each other, when she says this, what does it really mean? Like, you know, yeah, men don't have those conversations, but women do. You know, that yeah. great Margaret Atwood quote, men are afraid that women will laugh at them and women are afraid that men will kill them. Yeah, yeah. it's a good one. That explains, I think, the interest in true crime, particularly when you have, you know, you have women who, you know, regularly face this criminal justice system that was built by and for white men and frequently does not respond to their needs in any way. Yeah. And you have sort of this interest in true crime. And we tell the stories in an interesting, fun way. We do not say, good evening. Here's the story of a guy who was accused of killing his wife. It turned out it was the next door neighbor. Okay, stick around. (laughs) An hour and 59 minutes. Yeah, yeah, we don't do that. That's very well said and sadly true. Now, in looking at the sort of true crime landscape that's out there now, what do you think, because to me, it's like, Dateline and everyone else, you know, and there's a there's a a, a a large separation there, in my opinion, as someone who watches a lot of these shows. Right. What do you think is the secret sauce for Dateline that that keeps you guys really way ahead of the pack? Like, why is Dateline so much more popular and enjoyable um, than, say, uh, 2020 or any of the other shows that that try to to do this as well? Well, you know, look at our two main competitors, 2020 and 48 Hours. Yeah. 48 Hours has had the bad luck almost during their entire existence. They're on a network that already has a very successful magazine show. So they're never going to be a priority the way 60 Minutes is. That's uh, true. We don't have that. We don't have that problem at <laughs> <Right> NBC. <laughs> you know? So that's a problem. Second, they are confined to sort of, uh, you know, the wasteland of Saturday night, which is a... Uh, which is an evening in which, you know, decision makers are not watching TV. Um, right. And uh, and it's just not a high priority. It's, it's the lowest rated evening of the week. And even so, um, frequently our repeats on Saturday night beat 48 hours first run episodes, oh, which wow. if, it were, if it was reversed, I would be deeply depressed about that. Yeah. <laughs> and 2020 has kind of lost their way. I mean, they were the house of hits. They were the house of big gets. I mean, when Diane and Barbara were there, that was yeah. like a larger than life show. It felt like they got every big interview, no matter who it was. And you knew who was on that show and you knew what they were doing. And, uh, you know, Diane did those investigative hours and it was great. Yeah. And now, like, you don't really know who's on 2020 anymore. Um, everybody's kind of faceless. And for a long time, they did a lot of stuff like 
they would do an hour on like how to sell your house and not hire a realtor. <laughs> like, I mean, that might be useful, but it, it kind of pollutes your brand a little bit. Like they managed to make the audience think, I don't know what's on and I don't know who's giving it to me. And that's a big mistake with a show that's been on since 1978, since I worked at ABC News. I remember when that thing debuted. Yeah. So I think partly it's that we've been consistent. And I think we've also sort of, I mean, we're better at this. We tell stories better. Um, yeah. And the other thing they've done at NBC, which is something that is, you know, um, anathema in a lot of the TV business, is they have encouraged us to sort of be ourselves. Like our bosses want a Keith story to sound different from a Josh story, an Andrea story, and a Dennis story. That's cool. And, uh, you know, when you get Keith, you know you're getting certain things. When you get me, you know you're getting certain things. Yeah. I think the audience knows that and responds to it and likes it. And that's very well said. And I think, you know, a lot of the first part of your answer there was incredibly modest because I do feel like the fans love you, the correspondents on Dateline. Like, the, you know, they are fans of Keith. They are fans of you. They are fans of Dennis and, and Andrea. And now clearly NBC has realized that because, um, you know, you, you folks have been in place over there for quite a long time. Is that a situation where it's a network understanding what they have, supporting it and putting it forward the way that you would hope they would? Well, look, I mean, you know, the thing that always comes into play here is what works, what's bringing in an audience. And yeah. I think they figured out that that's working and that we have this connection with the fans. You know, we also do, you know, we do outreach to the fans in, uh, you know, on social media and uh, during the broadcast and, uh, and we go to all these fan events. And, and I think that helps a lot. Yeah. Uh, you know, look, look, when I, when I came here 29 years ago, I did not think this was gonna be the last job I ever had. And when they started doing crime about 10 years after I got here, I wasn't really that interested in doing it because usually, you know, in journalism, when you start, you're doing the cops. Not when you end. Because it was like 60 minutes, right? Like, I feel like uh, watching Stone Phillips, I remember. Yes. yes, it was like the sort of faster moving 60 minutes. We did yeah. like four or five stories in an hour. And it was a lot of fun working here because it was, you could do all kinds of stuff. And it was investigative stuff and it was profiles. And it was silly stories. It was fun. But that stopped working. And so we made the switch to true crime. And man, that really worked. I didn't see that coming. Yeah. But our executive producer, David Corvo, did. Good for him. Wow. Yeah, maybe we should switch to true crime. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Josh, give us any cast-off cases. That yeah, don't stuff deal that you don't, you know, that's not big enough for you. We'll yeah. dive in. <laughs> with our years of experience. Well, that's what differentiates us. Yeah, right. It's a lack we, we don't. Experience. We don't know what we're doing. That's, that's, right. that's our secret sauce. <laughs> so, I, and I think you just answered this maybe in your last uh, answer, but Dateline was a news magazine and then it kind of made this pivot to true crime as you said in in the mid 2000s certainly that's the biggest change at the show uh in your time there but has the show evolved even since then in the last 20 years or have they said oh boy we got it keep doing it well you know i, I think that we've gotten better at what we're doing like we figured out ways to tell the story that we didn't figure out at the beginning We've always drawn sort of a very bright line between the storytelling and the story itself. The story itself, there's nothing funny about that. 
These are yeah. horrible stories that change people's lives forever. And it's a it's it's quite an honor and responsibility for those families to sort of let us in and and, and tell that story. The storytelling is different, and you can have some fun with that. Now, you always know sort of where you have to come down. I mean, you're not making any jokes about the victim, but right. you know, you want to make fun of the killer in some way, you're usually on much safer ground. Or yes. maybe not the killer, but the story the killer is telling. Oh, yeah. And so that's something that I think has evolved over time. Yeah. You know, the, the other thing, of course, is that audiences um, have figured out what we're doing or how we do it. I mean, somebody uh, somebody uh, about a year ago sent me an email or saw it was on social. It was a tweet. Uh, and they said, um, the first guy you show us is never the guy. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, uh. <laughs> <laughs> so then I wrote one immediately where the first guy was the guy. Yes. Uh, get him. And then we circled back, um, yes. which was fun. And yeah. that kind of thing is, as a journalist and a storyteller, that is fun to do. Um, yeah. You know, and obviously, you know, depending on, sometimes we have access to the defendant or the, the guilty party. Sometimes we don't. If we do, sometimes they're out of custody. Sometimes they're in the slam somewhere. Uh, if they are behind bars, um, some of those prisons will allow you to dress them differently so that the audience can't tell they're locked up. Um, yeah. Sometimes they make you, you know, sometimes you're seeing them and they're in an orange jumpsuit, which means they're only appearing at the end of the show or they're yeah. behind a thick pane of glass, you know, yeah, that's, like a that. that's a giveaway. That's <laughs> a Yeah. Yeah. Well, was that, so I, I love hearing that, that, you know, you, you got some feedback online and then you instantly, you know, took that as a challenge to go in and say, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to throw you off the scent. And I have noticed this in Datelines, that it'll be in the first five minutes and that you'll be describing the grisly scene of the crime. And then someone will insert like, also on hand was uh, neighbor Randy just out of the military. And then you don't right. talk about him for 45 minutes. And then right. you're just like, remember that neighbor Randy who was just out of the military? I love that. No, no, that's always a lot of fun to leave some yeah. breadcrumbs that people find later. Uh, yeah. so I mean, I'm doing that right now, actually. Well, the hardest story to tell is when the obvious suspect ends up being the guilty party. Like, yeah. you know, the, the, you know, the husband who, you know, doesn't have an alibi, says he blacked out, is found covered in blood, right? I mean, <laughs> if, if he's the guy, that's a pretty tough story to yeah. tell. If he's not yeah. the guy, then you have an amazing story. Right. So, you know, that's the kind of thing that we look for. Do you find yourself instantly able when you hear a new story to just zero in on, like, it's definitely this person with a higher degree of accuracy than, say, I would be able to? Maybe, because I've heard so many of these go by now. Yeah. Like, could you pose as a psychic and then just kind of solve <laughs> oh, these things? Good idea. Yeah. I can, make some, can make some real money that way. Yeah. You know, murder investigation is frequently sort of a derivation of Occam's razor. I mean, right. technically everything is possible, but like, you know, this wasn't somebody with a lot of enemies. So if it wasn't somebody close to them and you don't think it was someone random, then, you know, then who was it? Um, but you know, a big city police department called me, um, which they don't usually do. Uh, the homicide division called me and said, um, you're going to want to come here because Ooh. this woman has just been found dead. She's got a trillion photos of her on Instagram and, um, she was found dead outside her apartment in a very nice part of town. And we just found out she has an OnlyFans, And we also just found out 
her boyfriend didn't know about the OnlyFans. So mm. we think either he discovered that and got angry, or one of the guys on OnlyFans figured out where she lived and Great story. stalked her. Yeah. Yeah. And I said, I'm, I am calling the travel department right now. <laughs> um, and I called New York and I said, let's go. And they were persuaded. And then before we ever like uh, even got on a plane, it turned out that uh, this uh, poor young woman had met her death in some completely random way. She had run into the wrong guy outside her apartment. It had nothing to do with her boyfriend. It had nothing to do with the OnlyFans. It had nothing to do with anything except oh, she was there chilling. and this guy should have been locked up and he wasn't. And they had his DNA because he had previously been incarcerated. And so it was him and... And we ended up not doing it. I would still yeah. take it upon myself to do a lot of research on OnlyFans. <laughs> right. <laughs> just yeah. kind of make a, sure. Just to. Just that's to a, yeah, it's a write off. Yeah. Well, that's what yeah. we I feel like yeah. a story like that is the reason why the fan base are predominantly women because my first thought is that could be anyone, that could be me. And so right. relating to that, that, you know, that could have been me, I, I should say, like just. That was a random person who happened to run right. across this person's path. And that sort of fear is sort of addicting to like say, wow, could could this happen to me? It's just sort of this weird feeding the fear of true crime can be. I think that could be me is exactly sort of what brings people in the door. Yeah. You know, I mean, look, most people in their lifetimes are not victims of violent crime, but almost everybody has been in a relationship that didn't go the way they wanted. And Dateline is less about the crime. I mean, we could find bloodier crimes and we could do serial killers and we could do sex crimes. And, you know, we, we generally don't. Um, and when you do stories about crimes in which uh, uh, children are the victims, people just change the channel because it's too yeah. tough to watch. Yeah. Um, I mean, we could we could we could go for much more shocking, horrific stuff than we do. But the stories we tend to do are stories in which the, the uh, killer and victim had some kind of relationship. And that could have been me. Uh, is is something that we definitely want the audience to think about. And, you know, frequently, uh, you know, th these are all about uh, choices that people made. You know, yeah. I want to get out of this relationship. I know I'm going to kill you, right? <laughs> yeah. How people go from the, the first thing to the second thing is something that still astonishes me, but it is a choice that, uh, that people made, frequently involving someone that, that they once loved someone that, yeah. that yeah. maybe is the mother or father of their children. Uh, it, it is uh, astonishing uh, yeah. to see how quickly people go to the place of here's my way out. Uh, I'm still alive. You're dead. I have all the money. Wow. Oh God, God. Well, <laughs> we'll circle back. Cause I, I got the impression that JC, maybe you have an only fans and I'm interested in that, <laughs> but I, I want to ask a couple of fun questions here. So you know, as Dateline correspondents, you guys have really become like sort of the Beatles of true crime. Like everybody <laughs> knows the Dateline correspondents. Like, you know, they know that Keith has a you know, his certain way of talking and he likes to lean against fence posts. Right. And in fact, there's a I believe there's an Instagram or a, a Twitter site that's just dedicated mm -hmm. to Keith leaning against fence posts. And there different... is. I think it's Instagram. <laughs> yes. Yeah, called yeah. Keith leans on things. <laughs> yes. Which I find hysterical. Yeah. But we've discussed before Bill Hader, uh, who's oh, very, yeah. very funny, uh, you know, obviously former SNL guy, you know, Barry. He's very talented, really funny guy. He does an impression of all of you. So 
did you tell me a little bit about how you how you saw that what you felt about it and did you discuss it with the other guys well you know first of all when bill Hader first did keith which yeah. was on saturday night live yeah um and it was only keith i saw keith um in the office uh and he said to me what did you think of that? <laughs> uh, everybody at the office imitates Keith. And, uh, and I said, what do you mean? It was great. And he said, well, I, I couldn't tell whether I liked it or not. I couldn't tell whether I, you know, whether I should be happy about it. He said, and then my, I realized that my kids were playing it hundreds and hundreds of times and falling down laughing. I'm like, yeah, I'm like, I would embrace that. Like, it's funny. Yeah. Um, so then quite a lot of time goes by. And then one day I get this call from New York and they say, um, we think Bill Hader talks about you tonight on Kimmel. Yeah. Uh, you know, by the way, the thing that's been missed through all of this was that this happened on ABC's air. I can only imagine how thrilled they were about this. <laughs> yeah. Just Kimmel. dunking on them. I'm sure. 2020, they were like massaging the bridge of their nose. Um, so, uh, and I said, really? Like, why would they do that? Like, I don't know, but we heard that they're talking about you. I'm like, okay. So I set my, my, uh, recorder to get Kimmel that night. But of course, you know, it goes on at eight 30 here in, in California, right. um, or at least in, in New York, it does. And whenever that happened in the program, like, like 20 or 30 minutes in, I must've gotten a hundred phone calls of people who were, <laughs> who were laughing so hard they could barely be understood. Uh, and, uh, yeah, he does this phenomenal imitation. I mean, I know he does Keith, but a lot of people do Keith and yeah. Keith is, Keith is very easy to imitate and hate is great at it now i don't know hater i've never met him if i ever do i will hug him <laughs> uh, but the imitation of dennis and the imitation of me so great it's so great yeah and uh and then that has become the thing that people say to me now like you know like people in airports say to me you didn't do that did you <laughs> yeah. Yeah. i know he's able like a lot of great impressionists i mean hater sort of runs that line he's kind of between dana carvey and like a daryl hammond so dana carvey does impressions that are just sort of the essence of people and then daryl hammond will do an impression that is so precise that it's scary right. that's right he lives somewhere in between there where he has a level of precision right. about it but he also is able to like especially with the dennis impersonation dennis murphy like Try, you know, and he sets it up by oh. saying Dennis tries to seem young. So smart. Yeah, so I smart know. of him. I remember <laughs> thinking like, wow, I had noticed that and I'd thought about it on some subliminal level. But like turning that into an impression is genius. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And just is, is using the sort of, you know, but the LOLs turned into OMGs. And just, <laughs> yeah. He just really yeah. nailed it. So I'm glad that you guys just embraced that in the spirit that it was delivered. Oh, yeah. How yeah. do you not? I mean, uh, yeah. look, it's I mean, honor. Uh, well, people are weird. Yeah. Even Keith didn't know how to deal with it the first time around. So I'm glad <laughs> that everybody sort of got there. Well, you know, Keith is very shy. And, uh, uh, you know, when, when, when we're together uh, and, you know, people come up to Keith and say, can they take your picture? Keith looks at them with this expression that says, I think you have me confused with someone else right. i'm like i'm like no no they know who you are like, they know, they're, like they, they're, they're watching you they like you it's not they're, they're not, they're, they don't think you're somebody else um and uh and he just can't sort of uh uh you know he's got this uh 
you know, this uh, this very, I I think, very honorable belief that, like, I want you to watch my work and I want you to like it and I want you to respect it, but I don't want you to pay any attention to me. Right. You know, like, well, that's, this is TV. That's not going to (laughs) happen. Right. Uh, Well, that's nice to hear about Keith. That's actually very sweet. Oh, he's the sweetest guy. So, and and another sort of uh, question that that I hear a lot, and actually from my mom had a couple of questions today. Ooh. So, the the first one, uh, which is an easy yes or no, I didn't is, know she listens. Oh, uh, look, she doesn't. All right, look how big you've gotten. Is that you? <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. no. She she said, uh, "Is Keith Morrison single?" Uh, no, he's not. He's okay. uh, She's very. He's, he's married, and as, as many people know, uh, tragically, he's married to Matthew Perry's mother. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's right. No, actually, I did oh, not know that. I knew yeah. he was Matthew Perry's godfather. I didn't know the reason. No, stepfather. S- stepfather. Yeah. Stepfather. No, and I and played a huge role in Matthew's life. And I, wow. this is a terrible time for Keith and his wife. Oh, God, that's awful. Yeah. Well, thanks, Mom, for bringing that yeah. up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's one nothing, question, Mom. one miss. Wow. Yeah, one, <laughs> one bummer. Um, <laughs> but, okay, so the other question, hopefully a little more lighthearted. I, I hear a lot of people talk about this. What is that setting that you guys all seem like you're trapped in? It looks kind of like a wine cellar. Is it a dungeon? Yeah, that nether world. Yeah, yes. um, yeah. We need a name for that, actually. Yeah. Um, Still don't. Um, okay, that is not any one place. You know, TV screens are only so wide here, right? But they're infinitely deep, so you can put stuff behind people, pretty far behind people, and you can layer the background. Um, with all kinds of different things and make the same space look enormously different from one interview to the next. A lot of times we will go to insert name of city here. We'll go to Dallas and we'll find a frequently it's an event space. It's somewhere that's big enough that we, cause we need a lot of room. We have a lot of lights. We have almost always three cameras on a shoot and we need a lot of depth. We don't want the, the lens right over somebody's shoulder. And then the crews who are, in almost all cases, freelance, sometimes staff, but usually freelance, they bring in a background, which they drive in because the crews have so much gear that it's very hard to get all that on an airplane, except in really exigent circumstances. So they tend to drive in with their vans and all their lights and all their stuff. And they have a lot of stuff to create that background. And then sometimes over the years, when we needed more background, we would go to, you know, Pier One or something. I think right. we should have gone there more because Pier One went out of business. But uh, oh, right, uh, probably okay. So that's that's our interesting. Fault. So that's yeah. not like one Dateline dungeon. No. It is like a set that is that is frequently in the city where the story happened, and then we get all the people to come there over a period of time. The old way of doing it was you used to lug your stuff around to people's homes and offices, set it up, tear it down, lug it over to the next place. And that means, first of all, you can't do as much in a day because it's just a lot of travel and set up and tear down time. It's great to have one place. Frequently, it's a place that's secure where you can lock everything up. Um, and the crew takes the cameras home, but like the lights and the stands and all the rest of that's still there. So then the next morning when you come in and you need to do, you know, two or three interviews in a day, and these interviews are like two, three hours long sometimes, yeah. and they've got to look different. You know, the cop right. can't look the same as the victim's sister, right. um, the background. So you got to change all that. Sometimes we do things at people's houses and things, but frequently it's a space that we rent that we can create where we can manage the light and the background, which means it's usually enclosed and dark and we don't have to worry about the sun moving around outside and that kind of right. thing. That makes sense. 
Now, just the idea of like you, you have so casually at, at the ready, the victim sister, you've probably met a hundred <laughs> victim sisters like o- yep. over the years. Right. They're, yeah. they're yes. a big part of the show. Now, yep. I'm, I'm wondering, uh, because uh, America is clearly obsessed with true crime, which has been great uh, for, for Dateline, has there ever been a, a case, or I'm sure maybe there have been a few, where you're working on it and you're saying to yourself, God, I could write this into just like a Fargo-style movie. Like, this case is insane. Well, I mean, you know, the thing about Pam ended up doing exactly that. Yes. Um, there was a Keith case, and it was, you know, a guy who was framed for murder very effectively, um, went to prison, um, and then it didn't turn out. Obviously, the cops had sort of missed the obvious suspect, or at least had done like appallingly little investigation. And the guy got out of prison and the right person uh, went in. Um, and I, I don't think when they were doing that, I don't think they thought to themselves, this is going to be a, uh, a TV show someday or a TV movie. But we did know that we were going to do it like like four or five times because we were covering it incrementally as we as we went along. I mean, right. you know, the original story and then the, the sort of misgivings about it and the, the guy, the guy who went away and the, the story about how the, the obvious suspect appears to have uh, sort of flown right by police radar. And then that did end up being, you know, a theatrical production. But is that something because you write your own copy for yourself and it's excellent. You know, the way that you set the scene, it's such a beautiful framework for these sometimes horrible stories. And, you know, as we'll talk about a little more, you come from this family with a rich tradition of writing. So is that ever something that you say like, well, I write great copy. Maybe I want to turn this into something bigger. Or are you just like, frankly, like me, where I'm just sort of like, nope. I like writing puns for a cartoon baby, and that's that's plenty for me. Like, I don't need to write a fucking novel. Well, um, I write great copy or words that have never come out of my mouth. But I'm telling you, you do. <laughs> well, all right, first of all, and the other thing is that the, the writing on Dateline is collegial, and it's collaborative. But, you know, you want to draw people into the story. And, yeah. you know, and as I say, they've done everything they can, our bosses have, to, to encourage us to sort of be ourselves. And so that's that tends to sort of, come through in the in the copy and they that that doesn't get changed i mean sometimes yeah. they change things but the stuff they change is usually not terribly significant usually makes story points a little clearer or something like that but you know have i ever thought this is a you know a script that a maker what should write no i have not <laughs> <laughs> has nbc ever come to you or dateline and said here's an opportunity for synergy we take the dateline mysteries we take the cases and we pipeline them into some sort of legal show or cop show well, i mean that's i mean i, think I know they kind of do that with law and order but you know like... right but i mean we don't have any formal relationship with with, with the dick with the dick wolf people right i'm saying like have they ever said we just take this audience and try to like move no they haven't yet i think they are absolutely looking for sort of the next you know edition of something like the thing about pam that did so well with renee zellweger yeah that was a little bit different story because dateline was actually a part of that story that wasn't just a story that appeared on dateline there was a point in that story in which the killer posed as a dateline producer to try to get one of the uh and this happened uh to try to get one of the witnesses to the crime to uh, or or to in, in the whole case, I'm more of a witness to the cover up to get in the van with her, and I'm thinking if the person had done that, they were probably not going to be alive any longer. Wow. Uh, and then for whatever reason, like they couldn't do it. Um, 
Well, uh, and they're and they are alive today. But there was, I mean, impersonating a Dateline producer is not something that happens in a lot of stories. I mean, so we, that was <laughs> that was a story in which we were part of the story in a way that yeah. I think we usually aren't. Oh, wow, that's so cool. Well, so I, I alluded to it, and uh, I, I know we've talked about it a couple times, but your family uh, history is is truly incredible. Looking at it, it's one of the great American families in a way. When you look at all of these, the, the branches on this Mankiewicz family tree, and you start with the obvious one, your your grandfather, Herman Mankiewicz, who passed away a little bit before you were born, so you didn't yeah. really get the chance to know him. But he wrote Citizen Kane, which many people regard as the greatest film in cinema history. So what was that like for you growing up and just knowing that, but not knowing the man? Did he live on through your stories from your father? I mean, do you feel any kind of connection to that? Oh, yeah. No, no. I mean, what was really weird was when the David Fincher movie Mank came out a couple of years ago. Um, And that was about Herman and Citizen Kane. And we had nothing to do with that movie. We were not consulted. We were not paid for it we were not i don't think they asked us any questions about it I mean, they just made it and netflix however was very nice of them they gave us a code uh so we could see it like a couple of weeks ahead of when it came <laughs> that's out cool. so, that's so, really cool <laughs> yeah so i sent that code around and made some money out of it <laughs> yeah. but, uh, <laughs> netflix was like why are you in cincinnati <laughs> so watching that here on my television set uh, here with with my wife I mean, I had to keep pausing it. I mean, because like you hear about this guy your entire life and here he is in the living room. Yeah. yeah. It, it was weird. And like, the, you know, I didn't know him, but I knew my grandmother and she's in that. And uh, I would have to say that the guy that I heard about all my life, you know, really smart, really funny, really talented, really full of self-hate, really drunk, really dumb in some ways. Um <laughs> you know, really, really hating himself um, is the guy that, that, that emerged from that movie. I thought I, that was about, I thought they got that about right. Oh, that's cool. That's, I yeah. mean, that's, that must've been such an interesting experience for you. And now as if to sort of almost one up your grandfather, your great uncle, Joseph Mankiewicz. Yeah. He's just a Hollywood Titan. I mean, as much as Herman is revered for Citizen Kane, Joseph did so many things, including, which I did not know, he wrote All About Eve, which, I mean, All About Eve, personally, is the greatest. I will pop in All About Eve before Citizen Kane in full description. Oh, yeah, no, no, it's sensational. And it's got some of the greatest lines in Hollywood history. Go ahead, I interrupted you. Yeah, I mean, he, uh, you know, uh, Joe, I did know. He was a lot younger than Herman. And uh, um, and he, he just died, you know comparatively recently he died joe died in 93 but joe was a writer and director and not nearly as filled with you know misery as as herman was much more of a sort of company guy and he got along with all the people that herman so resented you know the people that ran hollywood right that's the secret yeah joe figured out how to how to deal with those guys and be friends with them and get them to do what he wanted and Herman, you know, like had nothing but contempt for them and also couldn't stop showing it, uh, which might have been a mistake. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Joe did something that I think is not going to be done again, in large part because of how long it takes to make movies now. But Joe won in 1949 and 1950, two years in a row. He won the Academy Award for directing two years in a row and for writing two years in a row. Wow. And 
That I think is not going to happen because I don't think, I mean, name your great directors. I don't think they're releasing two movies in two years. It no. takes a couple of years to just make a movie, particularly, you know, a big one, a great one. That that record is probably going to stick around for a while. Yeah, yeah. well, I'm, I'm sure the production process itself, you know, back then was yeah. relatively swift compared to today. But I, I something about, first of all, let me just interject here that, that my great uncle, Nunchi, sold shoe parts so you know we're i think we we have a simpatico in this uh great great uncle uh arena Uh, yes there we go but it's something that i i also read about joseph which must have been an incredible sort of moment of kind of a disaster in hollywood history was he was sort of pressed to direct cleopatra i read that they had another director who was not working out and so they kind of begged joseph to go and do this. And of course, Cleopatra became uh, one of the most famous bombs in Hollywood history, and it almost ruined Fox. They had to sell a lot of their their land and all that. What we know as Century City is all because of Cleopatra. Yes, oh, wow. right. The, the fact that those are apartments instead of uh, Fox Studios. Yeah, still. They're, they're sort of Backlight. calling it yeah. the your mom's question of movies. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> oh, this is a bummer? No, this is Hollywood history. I want to hear if you ever talked to Joseph about that, or was that something that it was like, let's let's just stick with All About Eve over Thanksgiving? Oh, you know, he was he ended up being as dismissive of Hollywood as Herman was. Yeah, uh, It just took Joe a lot longer. Ruben Mamoulian was the first director of uh, Cleopatra. And so quite a lot had been shot already by the time that, uh, that Joe came on. You know, Joe was like, I mean, he was like the Spielberg of his day. And they were like, this is great. He's going to, this is the guy we want. He's going to fix this. And Joe should have said, I don't want to have anything to do with this. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I, I don't want anything to do with this. And I think he demanded some giant amount of money, which was like, like a million bucks, which nobody was ever paid then, you know? Yeah. And they were like, okay. And so then I think he thought, oh, well, now I have to do it. Um, And he should have just said, I'm not interested. Um, But I think he did. And I think there was some sort of like, you know, challenge, which was kind of a, you know, kind of appeal to his sense of self, maybe. You know, and then you also had, you know, you had a couple of things. One, you had a, I mean, that movie is phenomenally dull. Um, And it also came out at a time in which movies about things people said and felt were giving way to movies about things people did oh, uh, wow. yeah. and you know joe used to say uh, uh that he couldn't get all out eve made again today he said because there's no car chase there's no intergalactic warfare he used to yeah. say right uh he's like this is all about jealousy and betrayal and trust he goes nobody wants movies like that anymore well i mean you know i think the merchant ivory people would probably disagree but it might not be a giant <laughs> studio release the way cleopatra was and it'll right. be a smaller movie so you know, I think the, the, the Cleopatra, you know, came at the wrong time. It was sort of the last of the era before it instead of the first of, you know, the movies of the 60s that were so great. And then you also had the whole Taylor Burton thing that was playing out in the mm-hmm. middle of the production in which they were, you know, uh, dating or not dating or having an affair or not having an affair. Whatever they were doing, they weren't they weren't wasting any time making <laughs> yeah. a movie. Right. <laughs> and so it was a little like sort of the original Ocean's Eleven, you know, which like the right. cast, I don't know what the cast was up to, but like making the movie was not probably the first thing they were thinking of. Right. <laughs> it's so interesting that you um you say that it's boring because frankly you know, a movie like Ben-Hur that is highly regarded, the, the difference between Ben-Hur and Cleopatra is so slight. 
They're both, yeah. I, I find Ben-Hur to be right. quite boring. And then there's an insane, great, uh, you know, chariot race right. in right. the middle. And it just felt like the difference between something like Cleopatra and Ben-Hur is very small. But what, right. like what you said, Ben-Hur was kind of first or earlier. And do you think that America just had like epic fatigue? Yeah. And I, I also think, you know, and Spartacus and, you know, I mean, I also think there was no, you know, I mean, there weren't stories during Ben-Hur about how it was bankrupting the studio and about how everybody on the, on the film was like, you know, crazy and hated each other or, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, that was the, like everything was out of control on that. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's it's such an interesting time. And now, as if those two weren't enough, <laughs> you uh, had a, a a cousin Tom who passed yes. away uh, about ten years ago, maybe a little mm -hmm. more. And Tom Mankiewicz was Joe Mankiewicz's son. Joe yes. Mankiewicz's son, an an incredibly prolific and successful screenwriter in his own right wrote yep. several James Bond films, yep. um, did, uh, I believe, uh, a rewrite on Superman, the movie. And yeah, the, thing the, that first... was, the thing that was coolest to me was that he was a consulting producer and script doctor on Columbo, which is one of my favorite shows of all time. <laughs> yeah, um, well, he, he, he did a lot of TV work. He also was very big on Heart to Heart. Yes. Ooh, oh, awesome. Yeah, he was very big on that. <laughs> and, uh, and he also had a long he had a long relationship with Stephanie Powers that might add something oh, really? to that. I love wow, that. It, awesome. Now, so uh, when when I hear about this this family, I picture a Thanksgiving dinner. I picture you know, stories being thrown around about different experiences. Were you close with your cousin, Tom? Did he ever regale you with stories of James Bond and Superman? Oh, yeah. After I came to L.A., I wasn't very close to him before I moved to Los Angeles in 1991. Right. Uh, but, you know, for the last 20 years of his life, I spent a lot of time with him. That's awesome. Tom had a, had, had a reservation every day um, at the Palm. Um, that god i love that uh and the deal was he would call them if he wasn't coming in otherwise <laughs> he would be there at noon and he would sit there in his booth he had one of the first booths by the door so you could see everybody as they came and as they came past you he would give you a brief synopsis of who they were That's so in a great. tone of voice that I think he thought other people couldn't hear, but I think <laughs> they could. Somebody would walk by and Tom would say, been fired everywhere. <laughs> right? Uh, somebody else would walk by and Tom would say, widely loathed <laughs> I love him. Uh, my favorite was wanted to punch me over tuesday well <laughs> uh, that's great well by the way yeah. she was she was worth punching over very attractive yeah. yes oh my goodness so uh yeah i mean he and then he would regale you with all the the, the movies he'd made some of which were um, you know, memorable like Superman one and two and the Bond films, and some of which were less memorable like Mother Jugs and Speed or <laughs> The Sweet Rod. But uh, you know, movies it's are movies. All work. And, it's uh, all work. Yeah. Yeah. It's all yeah. And so he um he did that and uh yeah, he sort of held court the last 10 years of his life. I love that God. Goldie, how do we get a table at the palm and whisper it <laughs> guests yeah. as others oh, go by? Great. I was just thinking that we could maybe start doing this at a quiznos and then work our way up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's a good it's the way, it's a good the way to do it. And now yeah. and I've I've intentionally saved your father for last because mm. I, I want to put a little more respect 
uh, on him. So your father, Frank, was RFK's press secretary. Yes. And I believe he had the sad task of announcing to the world that RFK had died. And That's now correct. you were alive at this time, a young teenager. Yeah, I was 13. Yeah. What are your memories of that whole uh, moment in, in our country's history? Well, I mean, mostly, I mean, personally, I mean, how it just broke my dad. Um, you know, he had the, he'd worked for president Kennedy too, in a, in a yeah. much lower down um, capacity. He was director of the Peace Corps in Peru, but he joined because he believed in, uh, in John Kennedy. And, uh, and then I, I, you know, seeing that assassination, I know was very hard on him. And then five years later, uh, having uh, Dr. King and then RFK uh, was very hard on my dad. And, you know, it was fun growing up around him. It was, look, I mean, it was fun growing up in this family. I mean, I, uh, you know, when I was growing up in LA, uh, before we moved to South America for the Peace Corps with my dad, um, you know, we'd go to dinner, uh, you know, my grandmother's house and George Cukor would be sitting next to me at the dinner table. Yeah. You know, it was great. Um, uh, and then after we moved to Washington, you know, uh, and he was working for RFK, you know, Dolores Huerta would come over and she'd be plotting farm worker strategy at the kitchen table with my dad. This was, it was great seeing all of this. Uh, so that was, it was kind of an education and a lot of stuff, uh, just by osmosis. Yeah. And you, you say, you say it kind of broke his heart. Um, and which I yeah. can imagine it, it very easily. Did he get out of politics after that? No, I mean, he'd always sort of gone back and forth between politics and journalism. And he went back into journalism after that. He wrote a syndicated column for a while. He anchored the news, the local news, very briefly in Washington, D.C., which no one remembers. But he and I are actually briefly in the same. Uh, he was briefly in this business that I'm in now wow. um, as a local anchorman, at which he was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and then he had a little stint with PBS, I think. And then um, went to work running the McGovern campaign in 1972. Mm. Um, oh, wow. uh, overall, a spectacular failure, but a spectacular success in getting the Democratic nomination away from Ed Muskie and uh, Hubert Humphrey. Yeah. So that was a lot of fun. Um, I'll tell you a great story, which I just heard about the other day, which I'd forgotten about. In 1971, McGovern was trying very hard to get the endorsement of Senator John Tunney from California um, because getting Tunney's endorsement meant that you were acceptable to Ted Kennedy. Ted Kennedy wasn't endorsing in this race, but if you could get Tunney, who was Teddy's best friend in the Senate and had been his friend before either of them were in the Senate, um, uh, it was like this, like sort of, uh, uh, you know, this sort of like smoke signal that if Tunney was for you, then, you know, Teddy was probably also okay with it. Um, so uh, they tried very hard to get uh, the endorsement of John Tunney, who was only served one term in the Senate, was, was the, uh, the son of, uh, of heavyweight boxer uh, Gene Tunney, which will come in later. And then finally, they realize, you know, sort of, you know, as the campaign is uh, the end, it's like near the end of 1971, beginning of 1972, I think this is when this happened. Tunney announces that he's going to endorse Ed Muskie, who was then the favorite. And so they're kind of disappointed. Um, and my dad, who was running the McGovern campaign, calls Willie Brown, who was then a member of the assembly, uh, later uh, went on to be speaker, mayor of San Francisco, and was even then a very powerful figure within the California legislature. And my dad says to Willie, your dad was a boxer, right? I know this from, from Brown's autobiography. And Brown's like, uh, yeah, he was a little guy. He's like, right, he was a bantamweight, says my dad. He's like, okay. He goes, no, wasn't he, didn't he... Uh, he was very successful at boxing when he was in the Navy. This is in Brown's autobiography. He goes, 
I tried to remember whether my dad had ever put on a pair of boxing gloves while he was in the army, hundreds of miles from any ocean. Um, <laughs> he goes, he said, but by now I'd figured out where Mankiewicz was going. Yes, that's right. He was the lightweight champion of the Navy and in, 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 at boxing. It was great, said Mankiewicz, and he hung up. So then they go outside to face the press, and the press says, well, you've lost a ton of endorsement. And my dad goes, well, that's true. But we have Willie Brown, whose father was the bantamweight champion uh, of the Sixth Fleet. And, you know, on reflection, I'd rather have the heavyweight son of the lightweight champion. <laughs> ah, oh, that's a good who's setting that awesome. up. Wow. Yeah, that was good. Now, today, you'd never be able to get away with that. No, it'd be instantly researched. Instantly checkable. They'd be like, yeah. well, you're lying, right? But, yeah. but, you know, yeah. as my dad said, political reporting was a little more relaxed than those yeah. days. Oh, that's so funny. What a great quote. Yeah. Now, you, thank you. You've been so generous with your time. But before we let you go, I do want to talk a little bit about your, yes. your upcoming podcast, yes. which I yeah. call Deadly Sin on Your Direction. And now we're talking <laughs> that that might not be the case. Okay. So originally, this is a story about betrayal, dishonesty, infidelity murder, and crazy, crazy things that happened under the banner of religion at a little church up in the Seattle area. Mm -hmm. And uh, really insane things. And originally we were going to call this Twisted Faith, but there's a book written about the case called Twisted Faith. We interview the author in the in the, in the the story, uh, but we thought, okay, we don't want to give it the same thing. We just want to make it sound like it's part of that book. It's not, doesn't have anything to do with that, except it's on the same topic. So then we decided to call it Deadly Sin. Uh, but now uh, a title search has revealed that there's a trademark on Deadly Sin for uh -huh. some uh, true crime program that's available um, online. So then we were looking at... Um, so help me God. Unfortunately, Seven there's already time. a podcast called So Help Me God. And that's also the title of Mike Pence's autobiography, in which I think he laid out that <laughs> compelling case for why he should be president. Then there was Where There's Smoke, which was one of my choices, but there is already a podcast uh, by that. It's not about true crime. Then we were also thinking about Thou Shalt Not Covet. I thought that was good. Ooh, yeah. The Sixth Commandment. Uh, so I don't know quite what we're going to have. It's like oh. trying to find a new Gmail at this point. Yeah. It's like they're all just <laughs> exactly, <taken. laughs> exactly. So we thought Sandy. it was going to be deadly sin, but now it's not going to be deadly sin, but what it is going to be is available, uh, <laughs> at the end of uh, November. Um, and by then we are going to have a title and you are going to love it. <laughs> and we will, we will say the name yeah, of that wait. title as soon as you tell it to me. Now, when, when did these uh, twisted crimes take place around what era? Do you remember? Uh, it happened in uh, 1997. Oh, so in grunge, we trust. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Everyone, you can't tell it gets the podcast, but everybody's in flannel. Yeah. Okay, so I'm telling you, that's a potential title, in grunge, we trust. All right, we'll work on it. We'll text you some uh, some potential Good. titles for that. Perfect. But Josh, thank you so much yeah, for coming wow. in today. It was so fun talking to you. Uh, you're such an interesting, funny, charming, smart guy, and uh, your family history is so cool. Don't give me that skeptical look. You know you are. <laughs> You know you Thank are. you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for Thanks coming. for coming in today. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Oh, oh. gosh. Josh is so cool. What, yeah. what a cool guy. What a yes. cool job he has. I love Dateline. And what a, what a cool family. I mean, that, that yeah. family tree. He's a great you know, storyteller, too. We think about our families, Goldie. 
Oh, no. I mean, my dad was a doctor. I can't even find Preparation H. <laughs> Let alone apply it when the bullets are flying. No. You could not apply it to a butthole when the bullets are flying. Yeah. I would probably use my toe to apply. <laughs> That's a very dexterous toe. Oh, uh, yeah. Very dainty. If I was a doctor, I'd go, you know, let me... <laughs> Q-tip, baby. Um, All right. Now let's get into a portion of the show that we like to call Top 5. Top 5. Beautiful. Beautiful. Goldie, this was your topic. Take it away. Yeah, it just felt like, uh, you know, it's a big swing, but let's do the top five things that annoy you. (laughs) Yes. So here we go. Uh, Number five for me, is any towel smaller than a giant towel? (laughs) They should all just be big towels. No one's ever like, oh, good, this is a small towel. They should all just be big. (laughs) That's worthy, top five worthy, for sure. Uh, Number four, there's no excuse for bad coffee. It's pretty easy to make good coffee. Yeah. Yeah. So cut the shit and clean your urns. (laughs) Uh, Number three, unpopped popcorn kernels. They've got one thing they're supposed to do. They don't do it. It's annoying. Uh, Number two, sleep. Makes no sense. You should just live 30 years less and die and be awake the whole time. I love sleep. No, it's fine, but it, it, it's like now my sleep's troubled. I wake up to her and I have to regulate it and yep. go to look at your devices before you go to sleep. Like, just let's not sleep and let's just live shorter. That's fine. <laughs> and number one for me is when anyone asks me to do anything. Ah, there you go. That's there hilarious. Go. That's good. Um, all right. It's my turn, right? Because yes. see you next week. Okay, That's correct. great. Yes. Uh, Number five, this may be particular to me and my job, standards. The standards department at Fox. Oh, my God. They are so annoying. It's it's really annoying. They're, they're very kind, nice people. What they do in their job is incredibly annoying. <laughs> the, the big myth out there in television is that there is this set rule of standards of what you can say and what you can't say. There are no rules. It's all the arbitrary whims of people clutching their pearls week to week and saying, well, I don't like that. So there are no rules. And a little uh, fun fact, you always hear them say like, well, we don't want to get fined. We don't want to be fined. No fine in the history of television has ever stood up. No one has ever had to pay any fine for anything when it comes to standards. Wow. It is never held up because you have the... Ultimately, there's freedom of speech. Like you can say whatever you want. It's it's all about you know the advertisers. Are they gonna want to be involved in it? So they throw this oh, thing out like we're gonna get fined and we can't do that. It's bullshit. So I find standards incredibly annoying because every time I, we get a note, <clears throat> excuse me, vocal Glenn, uh, I just think like that's not real. Like you've just made this up because you're having a bad week. Okay, right. Very thoroughly, too thoroughly explained. <laughs> you got him. I got him. Number four, internet speak. I hate when people use terms like this human ran into this human today. Or when people say like, oh, 
that just hits different. Hate it. <laughs> I was today years old when. It's giving. Hate it. I don't like yeah. that. This is everything. <laughs> I yeah, hate like, that one. Can't stand it. Unless you're talking about a bagel, <laughs> do not say this is everything. Okay. Number three, the parking situation. Just in general? Doesn't matter where it is. Anywhere. <laughs> Situation. The parking situation. <laughs> always terrible. Always something wrong with it. Uh, number two. And here you're, we're going to get into a little groove here. Number two. My body. My body oh. annoys the hell out of me. It's, oh. always, it's always there. It's just always there. Every time shirts and pants are changed, there it is again. And number one. Of a piece. My mind. My mind is incredibly annoying. It's always <laughs> leading me on a fruitless wild goose chase about something that I'm upset about. I waste so much time I can with relate. it. And I wish I could channel it into something more productive or at least something neutral. <laughs> Just give me something neutral. <laughs> Can't do it. All right, those yeah. are my five. Those are JC. great. I can relate with number one. Okay, my number five, um, mosquitoes. I hate mm. mosquitoes. I will break everything to try to kill a single mosquito. <laughs> Number four, uh, maybe random, but um, when out of nowhere, one of my socks just loses elasticity and then keeps mm. falling inside my shoe and I keep having to... <laughs> th that's one of my really huge things. <laughs> Number three, perfume or car freshener that's too strong. Yeah. I can't. Just, yep. I cannot. Okay, number two. This could have been number one easily. Uh, when standing in line, when the person behind me is standing too close. To yeah. Me. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yep. Oh. Yep. Shoulders, Awful. elbows might fly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> backpacks might be swung. Yeah. And number one, rude or inconsiderate people. That's just uh, yeah. number one. I find yeah. that very annoying. I mean, it's annoying. There that was like annoying. a fine line between annoyance and hate. So, yeah. um, so you so, almost for number one, you almost said James Corden. It felt like you meant to, but <laughs> you didn't quite say it out loud. Um, that was a fun top five list, Goldie. Yeah, really fun thinking about things that really annoy us. Yes. Um, JC, what do you got for next week? Okay, next week, top five. Skills that you have or wish you had. Wait, that you have or wish you had? Yeah, just top five skills. So, oh, top five so skills. it's like okay. you can have them or you don't have them. So it's generally top five skills. Got it. I got know. It, got it. I know. Wait, did we so, really do this, Goldie? You might say playing the guitar, which is a cool skill, which you can do. But I wish I had better skill doing. It. Yeah. Yeah, oh, well. but it's just so a what do top I do? five skill. So you All could, right. you could, or you may or may not have it. Right. So it's just top five skill, um, you know, like negotiating or something. I don't know. Oh, that's a good yeah. skill. That's, that's so, a good skill. Okay. All right. Excellent. Well, we look forward to that next week. And also next week, we are, we're going to be guestless, right? Because yes. we'll, be, we'll be recording on the short Thanksgiving one. week. Um, so it's just going to be the just the three, three of, of us. us. Woo! Um, but now let's uh, end the show as we do every week on a high note. God, does feel long i'll jump in here so uh tall was away last week she was in bali 
oh. taking a, a well-earned and much needed uh, tropical vacation. Awesome. And I was uh, Mr. Mom on duty um, with Levy. We had a fantastic week together, just lots of fun, lots of laughing. She's adorable. I really enjoyed awesome. my time. And just of a piece, Goldie, you mentioned up top the bamboo, right? The bamboo <laughs> that I rub across my asshole because Tall, as you may remember, years ago decided to switch us from paper products to bamboo products to save the environment, blah, blah, blah. Wash it. An underreported negative of that is, you know, yes, the bamboo toilet paper is obviously awful. But what is almost worse are the bamboo paper towels, which are mm. so non-absorbent. Oh. So the minute Tall left for Bali, we had something that I am now calling mutiny of the bounty, where <laughs> I, the first thing after she left, goodbye, I ordered on Instacart one of those giant six packs of bounty. What a week I had with this bounty. I never thought a paper towel would give me so much joy. Every time a dog would pee inside, I was like, ah, oh. it's just, it, it's truly the quicker picker upper. I don't know if Bounty can make some deal where they just contribute to the rainforest for every roll they sell because it's such a superior product that it's crazy. Oh, you ever pee just right into a Bounty? Oh, that's great. <laughs> So that was my high note was levy with a dash of bounty. Oh, that's nice. great. You want to go, Goldie? Sure. So I never really wanted my kids to perform like, you know, comedy or anything. I, I just, and in fact, I kind of didn't want them to do it. But recently my eldest kid has been doing mock trial and it apparently like has been doing really well in it. And my youngest kid went into improv class and the teachers pulled me aside and said, you know, she's actually like really genuinely funny. So, <laughs> so yeah. awesome. I think, uh, you know, some decent part of my DNA may have made it into them and, uh, you know, maybe they're on their way. Who knows? That's really that's special. Awesome. That's yeah. awesome. awesome. That's so cool. Um, so, okay. My high note this week is, um, it goes out to two coworkers, um, Patrick Clark and Mike Wittenberg. Oh. <laughs> Neither one of them listened to the podcast. That wasn't what I was hoping you were going to say. <laughs> uh, but they were um, instrumental in helping me. Uh, last week, I had uh, some struggles uh, at work, and I actually think I had my first panic attack last week. Yeah. Ooh, I, congratulations. I, I think, yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you. And both of them were very, uh, very helpful in helping me get through it. So I appreciate Aww. them very much. Hey, thank you, Patrick. Let me just Mike. tell you, yeah. whatever show you're working on doesn't come out for a year. I know. Don't <laughs> I know. panic. <laughs> so it's fine. <laughs> um, all right. Well, it's those are true. great high notes. Very fun show today. Uh, fun guest and Josh yeah. Mankiewicz. Yeah. Uh, thank you all for listening. Thank you too for being awesome. Thank and you. And we will talk to you again next week. That was fun. And it stops right now. Yeah, maybe we should switch to true crime. <laughs>